0: Our next topic for discussion will be difficult cases in inpatient management of COVID-19 disease. And our speaker and host for the panel discussion will be Peter Chin Hong. Dr. Chin Hong is a medical educator who specializes in treating infectious diseases, particularly infections in patients with suppressed immune systems, organ transplant, HIV, organ transplant recipients, and hematopoietic stem cell transplant recipients. He directs the immunocompromised host infectious diseases program at University of California, San Francisco. And his research has focused on donor derived infections and transplant recipients and the molecular diagnostics of infectious diseases in patients with suppressed immune systems. So welcome, Peter, and we're looking forward to your cases and your discussion. We'll be joined by the same panel that participated in our earlier discussions of outpatient treatment, so I won't reintroduce our panelists, but I turn over the program to Dr. Chin-Hong.
1: Great. Uh, thanks so much, Dr. Benson, and thanks uh, the organizers um, for having me on, uh, and I'll try to do as best as I can with the current inpatient care issues around COVID and speak about some imaging issues as well. Um, I'd like to, uh, as Dr. Menson mentioned, we have the same panelists as this morning. Uh, I don't know if Dr. Lee is on. I can't see my all of my cameras. So maybe I'll just uh, introduce a new member to the panel, which is uh, Dr. Jonathan Lee from the Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston. Um, and uh, welcome aboard. Uh, So let me, without further ado, let me go on. No disclosures, and these are the objectives um, which we'll get to for the remainder of this talk. So the first thing I would like to do is really just present a case that um, uh, we had. uh, This was a few months ago now, and really illustrates, I think, uh, some of the issues that we think about when we have immunocompromised patients calling us in the outpatient We're not really sure what their trajectory is going to be, um, you know, whether or not they should be admitted. I would say most times uh, people who are immune compromised, as Dr. Um, uh, Haider would know that uh, we are having a very low threshold for admission. So the 53-year-old male with uh, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis status post-bilateral lung transplant in 2019 on maintenance immunosuppression uh, essentially tacrolimus, mycophenolate, and prednisone, which is kind of standard in the setting, calling your clinic reporting a COVID-19 diagnosis. So six months prior, he completed a Moderna vaccine series, including a, a booster at that time, uh, which was uh, authorized to transplant patients, which was one additional from the general population. Five days prior to symptoms, he went to an eight-person outdoor barbecue, um, uh, day zero developed mild cough and diarrhea. On day one, the time when he's calling, uh, he's calling your clinic reporting this diagnosis. Um, symptoms are stable, O2 sats are 99% on rumor. He has a home pulse oximeter, like many transplant patients do now. They went out to Costco and, and bought them. So um, he comes to the so he was planned to get a monoclonal antibody infusion, um, you know. People were nervous about his, I guess, in the community, about his drug interactions, although I'll get to that in in another case. Uh, He comes to the hospital and said, again, uh, kind of low threshold for admission by many transplant professionals uh, regarding these kinds of patients, even though if he was a non compromised patient, he probably wouldn't have been admitted. So the question is, uh, he's 93% of room air. Um, He's gotten the vaccine. Uh, and uh, you're asked, I'm asking what the next best management plan is. Are you going to admit him for remdesivir, uh, check a spike protein antibody uh, additionally, and option B, reducing the immunosuppression. In option C, you're going to start dexamethasone. In option D, you're going to add barocitinib. And in option E, you're just going to continue to manage him as an outpatient, trying to get him monoclonal antibodies. Great. So I see that uh, uh, people are essentially most people are are trying going to start dexamethasone. Um, Fewer, uh, a few people are going to just give remdesivir only, and um, and some people are going to start baricitinib. Uh, A group of folks are also going to see an patient. I think there's no magic uh, formula per se, and there's someone who looks relatively okay. Maybe he's Vaccinated, so you're not really sure. So I'm just going to ask Gaddy, what what is your thought about uh, how you approach uh, somebody who's kind of on the edge as an outpatient transplant patient? Uh, Maybe they should come in. They're looking okay now. They might have gotten vaccines. What are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, you know, I do think that uh, the various permutations that are listed here all seem. Reasonable maybe except the start baricitinib at this point. Um, I mean, I think the the more important thing is to administer some potent antiviral drug to a person like this. And if the threshold from the transplant center to admit is low, then fine, admit. Um and then just as long as you give them therapy, but I do think that that therapy for a person like this needs to account not just for the inflammation that might be happening, but also for the actual virus itself, especially since we know a lot of these people can have protracted uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection, uh, where you can culture, culture virus for a long time, where they can have evolution and things like that. Maybe not so much lung lung transplants, um, and so, you know, if, if you think they're looking okay and they can go to an infusion center or your ER, get a dose of monoclonal and go home, that's fine. If you're a little apprehensive about this and you want to admit them for, uh, for uh, remdesivir and if they end up being hypoxic, throw in some dexamethasone. That's, that's fine too, I think we're also a bit restricted in how we can use monoclonals for people like this because of the EUA criteria, which don't provide us flexibility to give it to someone who's in the hospital, but who, let's say, is SARS-CoV-2 IgG zero negative. We know from the Regeneron trial from about a year or so ago that these people, even if they're in the hospital, benefit from mAbs um that sort of language isn't there for the other maps these sort of trials haven't been done for the other maps so you really are restricted with uh with uh with uh, your options there um for me that really would be the only reason to check a spike igg although i know that other people might might want to check it for other reasons
1: great thanks so much gary um that's exactly all the questions we were asking as well and to the audience members who aren't used to taking care of transplant patients i would say you know this is the approach we have for immune compromised uh, individuals admitted as well so it may also be a consideration in someone with low t cells etc kara i was just wondering given your work in in monoclonal antibodies and thinking about that and convalescent plasma what are what are your thoughts around uh, immune compromised individuals and the use of these agents in the hospitalized patients, and what's the evolution of thinking, and where do you think we might go from there?
3: Yeah, I think um, that while overall um, there really has not been demonstrated benefit of antibody based therapies in the hospitalized setting for, for the global hospitalized population with COVID, um, but there does really seem to be a signal for potential benefit, survival benefit, um, organ support free days with antibody based therapies. in. Even though compromised uh, patients in particular, seronegative, as, as, as Gay mentioned, um, observed with cascarumab and devumab and with convalescent plasma, particularly in those with the uh, humoral deficiencies. And so I think there is a role for antibody-based uh, therapies in that setting in hospitalized patients. Um, and uh, and uh, there is no EUA, um, as far as I'm aware, for MABS uh, for hospitalized patients. Um, there an EUA for um, convalescent plasma I think one concern I would have with convalescent plasma is just the titer, getting adequate titers. I think, you know, high titers are really important. Um, With MAPS, you can control that more because you you know what dose you're giving. Um, And then the other concern would be um, the convalescent plasma supply. Is there sufficient supply from um, patients who recovered from, um, from Omicron to know that that convalescent plasma is going to be active against the current variants that someone might be admitted with? So um, I, I think I would really consider um, convalescent plasma, especially in a seronegative patient in someone, um, uh, with, um, humoral, uh, um, and someone with humoral deficiencies and and would try, p- possibly, you know, just to try to get betelumab, per- perhaps, but compassionate use, um, or alternatively, get convalescent plasma in that setting.
1: Great. Uh, thanks for a really robust uh, uh, summary, Kara. I think that, for the general audience, um, you know, even though we have de-emphasized convalescent plasma monoclonal antibodies in the general population, I think in the transplant population, in the heavily immunosuppressed patients, uh, people are still using it for all the reasons that uh, are outlined. I think in general, if you can get the patient uh, a part of a, a clinical trial, that's probably the best you uh, way to think about the general population, but in transplant patients, we, may, we are still uh, sometimes using it. Uh, So uh, for this patient, we actually uh, admitted the patient for remdesivir, didn't give uh, dexamethasone yet, Uh, the 0 2 sat was okay, uh, and checked the spike protein antibody just as a proxy of both vaccine response and whether or not, and then correlated with that, whether or not we need to give him any uh, uh, convalescent plasma monoclonal antibody product. Probably easier to give him convalescent plasma right now, given the EUA and the products that we have, um, and a high titer, as uh, Kara said. So in general, when we think about treatment of patients with COVID, just to break it down into two boxes, we treat the virus and we treat the inflammation early on. And that's why from um, Dr. Kim's uh, cases this morning, uh, the focus is really on early treatment with Paxlovid, because you really want to intervene early with shutting down the virus factory, because if the virus factory isn't shut down, the body gets angry, and that's why you need the anti-inflammatory drugs. So in terms of shutting down the virus factory, you can do that by remdesivir, Paxlovid, molnupiravir, et cetera, but monoclonal antibodies are also potentially useful for uh, neutralizing that virus. So it's essentially like shutting down the factory uh, to prevent uh, ongoing uh, infection of other cells. And then after a while, uh, inflammation uh, becomes an issue, and and that is what causes a lot of morbidity and mortality. So then you think about dexamethasone, baricitinib, tocilizumab, and there's some emerging therapies we'll talk about as well, infliximab, uh, abatacept, and sabizabulin. So just a few words of remdesivir uh, as it relates to immunocompromised individuals. Uh, I know um, many listeners have, use remdesivir extensively by now, but there haven't been many immune suppressed patients in the trials. Um, there have been included, but not many of them, and, and there hasn't been many subgroup analyses. Um, there's a higher risk of potential drug interactions toxicity in general when you admit these patients. Uh, and and um, immune suppressed patients, as been mentioned, have can have prolonged viral replication. So a question is whether or not you retreat somebody if they Continue to be positive. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Um, and again, antivirals may have more benefit due to impaired immune response, but early earlier is better. Uh, and transplant patients, immunocompromised patients, have a high risk for viral mutation variants. And this, uh, you know, these are examples of patients. This one patient on rituximab with CLL. Treated with remdesivir, developed a mutation RDRP. Um, and you can see that in these these patients, you can have prolonged viral shedding. So, what do we know about how do we use remdesivir in 2022? Well, in general, in the beginning, we treated the sickest of the sick with remdesivir. We realized over time that uh, earlier treatment, just like with Paxlovid, is probably uh, beneficial. Um, we treat uh, generally, all patients hospitalized with with COVID uh, with remdesivir, with in terms of immunocompromised patients, it appears to be safe. Uh, there's no significant increased toxicity with liver uh, in the setting, or in the setting of renal failure. Uh, the question again, like with uh, Paxlovid, should immunocompromised patients, depending on who you are, receive a longer duration of therapy? Uh, they have been patients who've received uh, multiple five-day courses, uh, and the ongoing question is about resistance and will antiviral resistance develop the longer uh, you use these drugs. In terms of dexamethasone, how do we use it in 2022? We use it uh, in somebody who's admitted, but then they're requiring oxygen. That's kind of the way we think about using it. Somebody requiring oxygen has a higher chance of having an inflammation uh, in the body, so the body's immune. Uh, cells getting angry, causing an inflammatory response. You use the steroids, and this is showing mortality benefits. But in terms of immunocompromised patients, uh, it is you know we, it is standard of care right now for that group. Uh, like the general population, there's a possibility of pro- prolonging the viral uh, shedding, um, and there is the risk, of course, of of infections with uh, the more you give uh, already immunocompromised patients uh, more immunocompromising uh, drugs. But again, it's always the risk and benefit uh, that we think about. So, in general, for immunocompromised patients, uh, we use the same threshold uh, for initiation as a non immunocompromised patient population. Um, we'll continue to look at complications, although, you know, patients who are transplant oftentimes get steroid. Uh, uh, pulses because of rejection, so it's always a risk-benefit situation. And uh, given the mortality benefits, uh, we're continuing to use it uh, in that way. In terms of the other anti-inflammatory drugs, uh, tocilizumab and baricitinib, two other widely used drugs right now, immunocompromised individuals are excluded from clinical trials, but we still use it in immunocompromised uh, patients. Uh, In many small studies, there haven't really been any signals apart from case reports of opportunistic infections with these additional anti-inflammatory drugs. Apart from uh, disseminated TB, uh, there was a case of fatal HSV-1 liver failure, CMV viremia, fatal cryptococcal disease, and disseminated strungloides, but these are generally the exception rather than the rule. Uh, the way we use tocilizumab and uh in 2022 is somebody coming into the hospital, everybody gets remdesivir, uh, you require oxygen, you get dexamethasone. If you're increasing your oxygen requirement, uh, you know, short, within the first 96 hours after admission, you may get the first agent, which is barocidinib. If you're increasing so much to go to the intensive care unit, Instead of barocytinib with dexamethasone, we would give uh, tocilizumab uh, with dexamethasone with a backbone of rendesivir. Although some people are saying, you know, if somebody is already admitted in the ICU, they probably wouldn't have benefit from rendesivir, but in immunocompromised patients, we give them the benefit of doubt. Uh, we, we continue all of these uh, other agents. But there are lots of questions with immunocompromised patients. Um, you know the, What is the actual benefit of immunomodulators uh, with a potential high risk of complications? And do these agents increase the risk of infection in immunocompromised patients with COVID-19, with and with steroids? And what is the impact on mortality? We talked a little bit about convalescent plasma. Uh, we generally would may use it if somebody is spike antibody negative, uh, particularly in a critically ill uh, Transplant patient, and we make sure we get a high-titer convalescent plasma. If we can get them enrolled in a study with uh, uh, monoclonal antibodies, we would. Although those, uh, you know, uh, far and few between these days. Um, I wanted to turn again to uh, Gaddy to ask. You know, there's some magic about when infectious disease doctors get called to manage uh, patients in general. Uh, transplant patients with opportunistic infections or in the case of COVID, and we're asked, you know, uh, do we need to reduce immunosuppression? What is your approach in general? And what are your thoughts about COVID-19?
2: Yeah, you know, I think that the big paradox here is that, for example, let's say with organ transplant, that a reflex, and I think what has become accepted practice at most places is to stop uh, or reduce some of the immunosuppressive drugs in someone with COVID-19, as you might if an organ transplant recipient is coming in with some other bad infection. And for example, things like you cut down on the dose of their cell sept, for example, or you, or you hold that. I think a, a paradox is that you are still then going to put them on dexamethasone. So sort of augment their immunosuppression if uh, they require oxygen. And then you might even consider doing IL-6 inhibitors and things like that. Although, so again, incrementally worsening the state of, of immunosuppression. Um, So I think that this remains an area that is unknown, although it has become accepted practice at this stage in most places to do some adjustments in the immunosuppressive drugs that people are in, are are on. I do worry about the incremental effect of piling on non-transplant-related immunosuppressive drugs to these patients, and specifically when it comes to the possibility of downstream opportunistic infections of post-COVID Aspergillosis and uh, things like that. And there's some other immunosuppressive drugs, for example, the heme cancer patients who might be on their scheduled, who might be on their scheduled r- um, rituximab, and might be due for it soon. And in the setting of active SARS-CoV-2 infection, we tend to really try to postpone this CD20 monoclonal as much as we can.
1: Great. Thanks so much for a really nice uh, discussion. So uh, as Gaddy said, you know, it's really an individualized approach. Um, I would say that uh, in general, the one agent that we might have some give is mycophenolate. Uh, but the big point for the listeners is that there is still a potential, you know, when somebody has, but even if they get an infection on top of the COVID, that's an obtusing infection, we would try to at least try to have that balance of reducing the immune suppression a little bit. Uh, in general, in the United States, we tend to use a little bit more immune suppression than other countries. So there's always a little bit give and discussing it with the, with the transplant team is oftentimes uh, really helpful based on that individual patient. So let's continue back to the patient and see what happened. Uh, again, Dr. he's- Dr. Yes.
2: Sorry, Dr. Jin, I wonder if I might ask- um, Oh yes. The, um, Dr. Lee has done a, a lot of work on um, the virology of uh, viral persistence. And I'm curious if he might wanna comment here about the barrier to resistance of the different SARS-CoV-2 drugs. We're used to that with um, with HIV, that uh, protease inhibitors and second-generation integrase inhibitors. It's hard for HIV to get resistant, but I'm interested in his comments on um, remdesivir versus monoclonal antibodies in terms of what resistance has been seen. Uh, and then with our oral, oral drugs, if he if he could share his perspective on that for immunosuppressed people in particular,
1: that's a great question, Raj. Um, Jonathan, John. Yeah,
4: yeah. Thanks a lot, Raj, and and, and Peter. Um, I think that's a great question. And actually, uh, the experiences that we've had with COVID-19 seems to really mirror what we've seen with HIV, um, in the sense that um, the areas of the virus that is most exposed to the host immune response, in this case spike, um, is also the most flexible and can tolerate the most changes. And that unfortunately leads to higher rates of resistance. And we've seen that with a number of different monoclonal antibodies, um, uh, bamlindivimab, casmdevimab, uh, sotrovimab that have lost uh, at kind of its its efficacy against uh, various variants. In addition, there's been reports of sotrovimab, um, for example, resistance and and resistance to other monoclonal antibodies, um, especially in immunosuppressed individuals. And this, I think, reflects what we see in HIV as well, where. Where a lot of the even the broadly neutralizing antibodies that we use with HIV sometimes can be a bit more fragile than we'd hope, be just because it's ta- it's it's targeting an area of the virus that is more flexible and, and has more variation and diversity. Um, and then in terms of Paxlovid, you know, there's been descriptions of Paxlovid resistance uh, in vitro and in, in, in cell culture. Um, really, ha- you know, haven't really seen um, I would say very many cases in in practice, and and um, including in post silver rebound cases that have been sequenced, resistance appears to be very rare, which is a, a silver lining here. And, and same thing with remdesivir resistance. Um, I think uh, uh, Peter, I think, um, listed a, a case report of, of remdesivir resistance. And, and so I think that, I think immunosuppressed individuals are going to be at higher risk of developing resistance, um, uh, given the larger, I think I would say, burden of virus and probably more diverse virus, especially if they've had um, uh, kind of um, active R replication for a long period of time. Um, and so I, I think, uh, ideally, these are the kind of patients who I think would really benefit from combination therapy, although it is, it is challenging right now to give combination therapy.
1: Great. Thanks, John. That's, that's, one of, that's a great uh, summary in a very, I think, changing and confusing area to many of us. So let's continue with the case. Uh, again, to recap, it's a 53 year old male, status was bilateral lung transplant on maintenance immune suppression, hospitalized with COVID. Uh, he was admitted his sats were not doing too badly 92, 93%. His x ray looked like it had uh, uh, chest uh, bilateral infiltrates. So, uh, you know, again, we start pretty much everybody, particularly immunocompromised, remdesivir, regardless of O2 sats. We negotiated with the surgeons to hold his uh, mycophenolate. Uh, There was some give there. Uh, On day five, he started requiring more oxygen. Um, His spike protein uh, antibody was negative, uh, both nucleocapsid uh, suggesting he wasn't exposed before as well as spike suggesting that he didn't get any response to the vaccines that he's had. Um, He was started on dexamethasone. Uh, O2 requirement, and then he was being very dynamic, so by day eight, he continued to increase his need for uh, oxygen, was placed on high-flow nasal cannula, and then intubated, Uh, so we considered pondylacin plasma, actually gave him high titer, and started tocilizumab uh, without going through a biocitinib intermediary, he was um, going very fast and, and landed up in the unit, uh, early on. Uh, so we combined tocilizumab with the dexamethasone and the remdesivir. So by day 20, he was extubated and his SARS-CoV-2 PCR was negative. But the plot thickens because um, on hospital A, so on hospital A number 20, he's doing fine, extubated. Uh, we thought that was the end of it. But by day 25, uh, he was on the floor this time, was gradually worsening again, had uh, hypoxia and was reintubated. A CT scan was performed at that point, which showed this. Uh, basically, uh, you know, I'll have you think about what this might be and then I'll give you an interpretation with the answer. But maybe there are two processes, maybe there are one. So the question is, what is the most likely de- cause of decompensation? Is it aspergillus? Is it drug toxicity? Is it uh, SARS-CoV-2? Is it SARS-CoV-2 and aspergillus or none of the above? Great. So I guess I primed the audience well with sort of my talks or my descriptions before this. So most people actually gave the SARS-CoV-2 an aspergillus. It is an immunocompromised host. Uh, Some people think aspergillus only, which is also reasonable. Um, uh, So I think the audience is is right on in general. Um, So in terms of the uh, chest CT scan. Although there's some ground glass, uh, which is in the background, you see this kind of ground glass here. Uh, there is uh, also some some nodules with ground glass around it. Even though these nodules are so big, they're kind of coming together. That looks like consolidation, but definitely kind of nodular in its its origin. So I think um, this ends up being uh, for this patient, SARS-CoV-2 and aspergillus. And I'll explain how we got to that. Uh, uh, conclusion. So on day 25, when he's worst, he had worsening hypoxia and reintubated uh, chest CT scan again, uh, these nodules almost looked like rounded consolidations with a background of diffuse ground glass. So, like ground glass nodules or ground glass consolidations. His trach aspera is positive for moderate aspergillus fumigatus. And his SARS CoV 2, after being negative, became positive. So, like Raj said, uh, this idea of rebound isn't a, a thing that's isolated the Paxlovid, actually, and people on no Paxlovid, just with COVID, have been seen to have this sort of like um, bimodal uh, and, and rebound with, with SARS-CoV-2, and, and in this case, we definitely saw it. So uh, we started, he, he couldn't tolerate variconazole, so he's put on Isaviconazole for the astralis. on For the um, recurrence of, of SARS-CoV-2, we gave him an additional five days of remdesivir, he improved after that. Uh, he was discharged. He was one of the lucky ones because uh, aspergillus and COVID is associated with a very high mortality rate. Uh, in this observational cohort study from Europe, there are two cohorts in the Netherlands, Belgium, and France from ICU patients, about 1,000 patients, 823. They define an entity called COVID associated pulmonary aspergillosis uh, using some criterion from the European uh, Micro Society uh, as well as. ISHAM and uh, basically found that uh, in all comers, immunosuppressed or not, uh, COVID-associated pulmonary aspergillosis was as high as 10 to 15% in ICU patients, um, and the risk in- increased with COPD, with immunosuppression drugs, uh, not including steroids, and with HIV/AIDS. Um, mortality rates 43 to 52%. So um, you know. We've seen numerous cases of astrololus in our center as well. And again, it it, it was very striking in, in terms of uh, something that we saw during the pandemic. I'd say there are other viral illnesses that increase the risk of fungus, um, for example, CMV. We know that C- having CMV before, particularly in immunocompromised patients, it's well known that it changes the immunologic milieu and you can get aspergillus following that. So it was, I guess in hindsight, uh, very uh expected that aspirilis may also uh, exert its effect in this kind of milieu. I wanted to just close on, for this case, on some emerging COVID therapies. Um, just a couple of days ago, now, top-line results from the active one immune modulators clinical trial, uh, showing that for moderate to severe COVID, all patients given a backbone of remdesivir and dexamethasone um, looked at infliximab versus placebo at 28 days with about 1,000 patients. No difference in time to recovery, but 43, 44% improvement if you got infliximab with this backbone of remdesivir and dexamethasone for clinical improvement. And interestingly, statistically significant mortality benefit if you got infliximab versus placebo, 10% versus about 15%. If you got abatacept versus placebo, pretty similar uh, in that uh, analysis, clinical improvement, about 34% mortality benefit, 11% versus 15% statistically significant. Um, and again, there's some excitement about or cautious excitement about sabizabulin, which is an oncology drug. It's an oral drug, a micro, microtubule disruptor. Uh, in this trial, uh, looked at, at phase three, randomized control trial looked at moderate to severe COVID patients. About 200 patients were enrolled, but they looked at the interim analysis for the first 150 patients. ICU days down by 43%, mechanical ventilation days down by 49%, hospitalization down by 26%, mortality benefit 20% in the zabulin group, uh, 45% in the placebo group, uh, and also fewer adverse events, interestingly, in the sabizabulin group. Uh, so that is kind of interesting and may change the landscape. Um, But I guess um, just some questions for the panel that I've kind of chunked here, but maybe since we ended on the emerging therapies, I wanted to ask uh, Raj maybe to comment on how do you think of the role of these emerging therapies in the care of hospitalized patients? Uh, You know, I know some people are sort of wary about these uh, results of these newer agents. Is there, is that going to change what we do in the future? Uh, Is there going to be anything coming up in the near future that we might think about? I don't know if uh, Raj is there, but um, maybe um, anybody else from the panel?
5: No, I, I, I can take this one. I guess um, thinking through what you just presented, um, the um, uh, the the active um, trial that has looked at active one, I believe, looking at these uh, other immune modulators um, is quite intriguing. Uh, we we have the press release data public, but uh, in general, the active trials are very well conducted with placebo controls and. Um, you know, um, won't be subject to the same issues with open-label controls. Um, you saw the mortality benefit, which is what we're looking for, um, and whether this would represent an additional alternative to both baricitinib and or each of which have had major supply issues in times of surge. Um, and so um, uh, infliximab, um, as a, um, agent uh, does have some um, biosimilars and and is uh, sort of with us longer. And and we have uh, perhaps different access in terms of supply. And also around the world may represent an interesting option. Uh, I know less about uh, about Abadicept as an agent, um, but um, it had equal uh, promise. And I'll also note that they had an arm that um, that was not effective, which kind of serves as a as a control arm for the positive results in the sense that, you know, not only were the controls, the true controls um, uh, uh, have higher mortality, we also have another group that has Higher mortality. So these, these results seem to be robust. And it seems like we'll have additional options in our immunomodulatory armamentarium. But what we won't have yet is whether to continue to escalate, you know, different pathways of, of targeting different pathways. Um, you know, do we do both IL6 receptor blockade and TNF alpha blockade? I don't think we'll have that data anytime soon. So um, I think that's the way I view what you just presented on immunomodulators. Great. Uh, Thanks.
0: One other issue that um, previous uh, panelists have raised in the Q and A and in the discussion is, in these very vulnerable patients, what is the role of combination antiviral therapy? And I think, as you've shown with your case. options are in development where we might be able to use combination antiviral therapy. And I think this group of individuals with moderate to severe disease that are are immunocompromised is the population where I think we need to be exploring that concept in clinical trials. We did it with HIV, obviously, and people who uh, needed better therapy. And I think we're in the same Situation with this group of patients that need more effective antiviral therapy than just giving another dose of remdesivir for five days. So I think there is a hole in our armamentarium there for people who have ongoing viral shedding, viral replication that's detectable. And what we can do, there are a couple of additional 3CL protease inhibitors that are in development, but most of those clinical trials are aimed. At the outpatient setting, just like Paxlovid was, and Molnupiravir, and Molnupiravir failed in the inpatient population setting. So, I think there's room for improvement in our antiviral armamentarium, not just in our anti-inflammatory armamentarium.
1: Great, thanks so much, Connie. That's uh, those are great comments, and Arthur as well. Um, my the first other question I wanted to just. Uh, Uh, say for thought experiment, if this was a 53-year-old male with HIV low T-cells on uh, viral load undetectable uh, on antiretroviral therapy, coming in with or presenting with the same symptoms, would you do anything differently? And I'd ask anybody in the panel to take that question since Rachel isn't here uh, because she had clinic uh, right now.
6: Oh, no, I'm, I'm here.
1: Oh, you're here? Okay, great.
6: Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think that I would do much different at the beginning. I think, you know, this is someone who falls into the moderately immunosuppressed category based on their um, very low CD4 count. I think the main consideration is to just check their ART regimen and make sure that they're not on a protease inhibitor before starting de- dexamethasone. Um, you know, in this scenario, I think this ART regimen is, is robust and should be fine with their um, uh, with the planned therapy, starting with uh, remdesivir, and I would hold off on dexamethasone right now, but would probably escalate in the same way that you did um, with the patient you described. Um, and then just watching closely as people get, you know, critically ill, oftentimes their renal function changes and we have to change ART. Again, this is a pretty reasonable ART regimen in terms of uh, uh, changes to, to um, renal dosing, but um, just, just thinking about those things as somebody um, becomes critically ill, but but I, I might have um, used I've in this patient further along the course, um, but not at this stage.
1: Great. Thanks so much, um, Rachel. And Laura, I wanted to know if you, your comments around a hospitalized uh, pregnant person, a 33 year old female, 31 weeks pregnant with worsening cough, dyspnea, same picture as well. How do you think about uh, the agents that we currently use in? the general patient population as it applies to pregnant persons?
3: I think essentially the same ones. There's
0: this patient, um, you know, the the 93% is not so good in pregnancy as for it's probably, it's fine for mom, but, um, you know, at 31 weeks, the fetus needs much more oxygen than that. Um, but in, in, in general, we would be concerned about someone like this decompensating further, especially because you've got the competing size of the uterus, which it, at, at 31 weeks is well, almost into the chest. Um, and so, um, she definitely could get sicker. So we,
3: our response would probably, would most likely be remdesivir as well as steroids actually. Um, from the from the get-go
1: great thanks so much uh so again to the audience you see it's it's really like uh you have your basic thing that you do in the general population but with special populations they are actually things that are out of sequence or, or special considerations that uh you might make so thanks to the panelists for all your wise comments um uh, i move on now to um the next case, uh, this is a real case again, a 44-year-old female, status post-liver transplant, 2019. Maintenance immunosuppression uh, as an outpatient on Paxlovid, uh, SARS-CoV-2 positive. She's admitted with acute renal uh, kidney injury, creatinine of 4.0, baseline 1.1. What's the most likely cause of the acute kidney injury? Is it BK virus? Um, Uh, Is it COVID-19, is it multi-system inflammatory syndrome in adults or MISA, is it Paxlovid or is it none of the above? Um, so men, most people put uh, MISA, which is definitely a possibility. Some people put um, COVID nineteen uh, as an effect on the kidneys. Uh, certainly, uh, there is some thought about uh, you know if the patient was recently transplanted and the donor had COVID nineteen. Um, uh, there's a possibility that that might uh, increase um, you know you know organ uh, carriage of 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 viruses, although that hasn't been substantiated by, by the evidence to date. BK virus typically affects more kidney transplants than liver transplants, but, but always uh, you know a, a thought in terms of renal issues, uh, particularly in hemorrhagic cystitis. Uh, and about 10% of the people put Paxlovid, 20% uh, none of the above. So uh, again, a real case, um, and the answer and the culprit was Paxlovid, and I'll show you why. So, when this patient came in, the tacrolimus level was checked. It was more than 60. A normal range is 5 to 15. Paxlovid was stopped. Uh, the pharmacist actually got involved, gave rifampin as a way to drive down that tacrolimus level faster, which was super interesting in terms of a pharmacologic um, intervention. The patient had received Paxlovid from the local uh, MD without adjustment of tacrolimus dosing and not really in collaboration with the transplant pharmacist. So it was kind of a systems breakdown, uh, although since this case, we've tried to uh, make the system smoother. And the reason why is because Paxlovid contains ritonavir taken as 100 milligrams or really twice daily for five days with nirumratrelavir and drug interactions may be dangerous if not uh, considered. So, this is an example of how we uh, deal with tacrolimus at UCSF. Uh, different institutions have different protocols, but um, you have to worry about both uh, starting Paxlovid when in the background of tacrolimus, cyclosporine, everolimus, serolimus, any of these uh, urine inhibitors and other drugs with interactions. Um, so, we'd ask the patient to stop the tacrolimus after the morning dose. Hold the tacrolimus uh, during the time of Paxlovid and then restart the Paxlo- the tacrolimus at day nine, uh, given uh, some washout period of the Paxlovid before uh, restarting the TAC, because the TAC levels may still be high. And then by day 11, you check the TAC level and uh, routine labs to adjust uh, or fine tune the TAC. The point to the audience is not that you become experts in tacrolimus and transplant but rather that are workarounds, many of the drugs with Paxlovid, uh, sure, we've seen a a bad consequence of that with renal failure in this patient, but I would say that there's so many more patients who are also denied therapy because there's a thinking that when you look up drug interaction uh, charts, this says caution, but actually there are ways in which people have worked around all this so that the most vulnerable patients can have access to you know, the best therapies that we have so far. So I know much of this has been talked about in the first case, but I just thought for Booster, if anybody can just maybe Rachel or Arthur, just your favorite drug interaction uh, uh, checker and do you stop there? Do you talk to the pharmacist, particularly with, with some of these kinds of patient issues?
5: Sure, um, we, we love our ID pharmacists, obviously, and, and they are so useful too, um and helpful and um, uh, really um, can't live without them. And, and they've also been uh, carrying a lot of the lion's share during this um, pandemic of, of extra work. So um, really appreciate um, their assistance for some um, borderline areas. I think, um, you know, tacrolimus is a famous one with these very dramatic cases as you just presented. Um, and um, we, we uh, tend to try to avoid uh, use at all of Paxlovid and, 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 and refer them for IV therapies as a result. And I think, um, you know, if you do this a lot, you begin to recognize that, you know, certain statins interfere a lot. The amlodipine, they advise half the dosing. These are just become sort of a bit of pattern recognition the same way like common drug interactions with HIV drugs like metformin and those kind of things just become a little bit second nature once you've done it a while. But I think it's still um crucial to um run your drug interaction check. Uh, I use the Liverpool site. Um, I've become very familiar with that for hepatitis C therapy. Uh, and if you recall, there was one with Rotonavir. So we actually did think about that a lot uh, several years back uh, with one regimen. So um Uh, And I just find that site is particularly user-friendly in that you input um, all the drugs, as long as it's available in the UK, it seems to show up there. Uh, uh, And um, you can even type in brand names of hepatitis C drugs, for instance, in the Liverpool site
1: and and the generics come up. So so that's very helpful. Great, thanks so much, Arthur. In the interest of time, I'm gonna skip question two and three because that was covered really well in the previous session. Um, therapeutics for outpatients, and who to prioritize for Paxlovid. And maybe ask Connie, um, can you prescribe a person a course of Paxlovid to take abroad uh, in case they get infected? Uh, You know, what you think you would like to do and what actually you could do?
0: (laughs) I was just going to say, it's a matter of what you can do and what you should do. So (laughs) I have Uh, This is a question that comes up all the time, especially with high-risk patients who worry about traveling and want to have rapid access to Paxlovid if they are traveling. I encountered it on a trip myself with uh, an elderly couple on a hiking trip to Ireland this spring, and their physician did prescribe them Paxlovid to take with them on their trip should they become infected? And in fact, one of them did and started Paxlovid right away. Um, I think this is variable from uh, location to location. I know that there are pharmacies in our area that don't ask. And I guess the it's another case of don't ask, don't tell, but if they have a valid prescription from a licensed provider, they fill the prescription Without asking whether the patient has a positive test for Paxlovid or for SARS CoV 2 or not, and fill the prescription. Other pharmacies are very much uh, dedicated to what the current recommendations state that you can use Paxlovid for, and right now that's not one of them. So I'll be interested to hear what other people have done, but.
1: Well, I think, Connie, you recaptured really the nuance of the of the situation. now, I think as ID docs, we know it's a fine idea. In fact, it's a good idea. We give uh, prescriptions of all the time to people going abroad for traveler associated diarrhea and, and, and entamoeba, histolytica and all sorts of things. So, you know, it's just, you know, the, the nexus or where we are right now. I don't know if anybody else had any other comments. Uh, and if not, we would move on. Great, so I'll present the third case now. Uh, This is a current uh, inpatient we have right now at UCSF, Um, 34-year-old male with uh, HIV, uh, viral load undetectable, uh, with recent syphilis treatment, presenting to the emergency department with sore throat, headache, malaise, um, generalized rash on the body, including oral and genital lesions. Uh, He says it looks like zits, but they're bigger. So what's the most likely diagnosis? Is it COVID-19, BA5? Is it monkeypox? Is it syphilis with a Jarisch-Herchheimer reaction or uh, any of the above? Oh, I say all of the above. Uh, so I think the audience is really keyed into what's going on right now, which is monkeypox in San Francisco, uh, 47%, 18% syphilis, gyroshyschema reaction, and um, 35%, any of the above, it should be all of the above. I'll, I'll show you uh, what happened. Um, so uh, in this case, uh, the patient was positive for SARS-CoV-2. Uh, the sore throat, uh, had the uh, orthopox virus PCR positive. It was monkeypox, uh, but chest x-ray was negative and 98% room air, and the patient was treated with tecovirumide. It was also thought that the patient had a gyroshursheimer reaction from uh, syphilis treatment with penicillin uh, for secondary syphilis uh, a few days ago. So all of these things were presenting at the same time. And these pictures, you can see, first of all, let me go back to the original picture you see that there's this rash that was actually part of the syphilis. Uh, but then on on top of this rash, there were these things that looked like pimples. Um, and then when you did an exam in the other parts of his body, you saw more of these sort of pimples on top of this maculopapular rash. When you look at his hands, his palms, there was this other kind of pimply looking thing here. So fluid filled uh, pustule almost. And then in his uh, anal area, you see a lot of uh, sort of like Uh, almost coalescing um, uh, postules uh, together, causing very, very painful um, lesions for the patient, um, very difficult to defecate, um, Very feeling a lot of stigma to it with this rash. Uh, He was treated with uh, antiviral tecovirumab. So first of all, let's address the issue of hospitalization with or for COVID in 2022, now in July. at least, uh, you know, we've been seeing in the hospital side a lower proportion of hospitalized patients with serious disease, lower ICU census, fewer mechanically ventilated, shorter stays. Um, Stanford and UCSF, uh, the data right now is about sixty-five percent at Stanford admitted for something else, even though they are SARS-CoV-2 positive. At UCSF, we are about fifty-two percent. This patient falls into that. Uh, his chest X-ray is negative. Um, he, I didn't give the other information, but very uh, well up-to-date on vaccines, uh, all of that. Um, so that that's basically the situation there. And then in terms of monkeypox, just to end in the last few minutes before the Q&A, uh, emerging viral infection, as you know, can happen with COVID, without COVID. Uh, incubation days is about seven days, a little bit longer in the textbooks for the classic monkeypox, I would say, most people are around uh, seven days, the ones that I've seen. They can present with flu-like symptoms in the beginning, 82% top five symptoms of fatigue, fever, lymphadenopathy, myalgia, and sore throat. But that means about 20% of people have no flu-like symptoms or prodrome. Much of the flu-like symptoms could be mistaken for COVID at the same time. So uh, again, it's a assessment of risk and, and counseling of the patient as to whether or not they'd be eligible for vaccines or not. Uh, pretty much 100% of people eventually get a rash about, you know, one to two days after the flu-like symptoms if they get it. And about 10% are hospitalized. Um, at UCSF so far, we've had about three hospitalized this week. Uh, they generally get hospitalized for, uh, a, you know, some sort of other thing, like in this one patient I presented, they had uh, the Jarisch-Herxheimer reaction, plus the COVID, plus the monkeypox. Uh, but the pain on defecation, the uh, proctitis, uh, painful oral lesions uh, precluding eating and drinking, that's generally the way in which patients are being hospitalized now. Traditionally, in the pandemic, people or in the epidemic uh, over the years, people have also been hospitalized for super infection with bacteria and sepsis. So these are other things that uh, people are watching out for as well. So some of the rash pools are follows flu-like symptoms, it starts in the genital area as opposed to the arms, like in the textbooks. Maybe mistaken initially for HSV, syphilis, for colitis, abscess. Uh, we had this patient at a, 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 another hospital in San Francisco who saw this inguinal abscess, was happily draining it uh, in clinic, and then later on found out the patient actually had monkeypox, so had to get a vaccine. So, you know, be wary of these abscesses uh, when you're seeing them in clinic. The movement of the rash is key. So of course, it starts in general area, then moves to the face, arms, and fewer in the trunk. The rash can be umbilicated, a nice little divot. It can be extremely painful. And that's why a lot of patients who are hospitalized are being hospitalized. And then it's one of these palms and soles rashes like syphilis and Rocky Mountain spotted fever. The rash crests over, scabs, and falls off in one or two weeks. But if you think about start to end, patients are kind of down for Oftentimes, three to four weeks. So unlike COVID, five days, 10 days, what have you, you're out of work for about 28 days, and that's really, really tough for some people who may have uh, been marginally housed or have income that uh, requires day-to-day work. The drug we've been using uh, in some places is tacovirumac. It's an antiviral, FDA-approved for smallpox, but not for monkeypox. So it's given under... um, uh, EAP by the CDC, which means that they have an IRB, but many centers need also the IRB to look at it. At UCSF, we needed to use our own template. So that was a little bit of delay to get it ramped up. Not a lot of places uh, have it available yet. Um, Three pills twice a day for two weeks. No randomized controlled trial actually saying it works, except in some case reports. So I think we really need to to really think about uh, tech of but it is very well tolerated. There's an oral and an IV, um, and we've been using it in these uh, severely ill patients. Um, Basically bad disease or bad host, um, including those who are hospitalized, and if they have lesions in their rectal area, oral ulcers or eye involvement because it can affect vision or bad host, severely immunocompromised, less than eight, pregnant or breastfeeding persons, inflammatory bowel disease because you can get strictures and or severe and active dermatologic disease. Just just, just one of my patients uh, who I treated, who was one of the ones who recovered dramatically, but then there are other ones who recovered more gradually. He has some underlying atopic dermatitis. So it was a rash on top of a rash again. So that's why it looks so a little bit different and confluent, but by day three on on TPOX, he really had uh, a really great uh, response uh, to it. So I guess just to close off in the last, Couple minutes, um, and anybody in the panel could take it. And maybe uh, should we doing be doing more studies on monkeypox therapeutics? And maybe Raj, if you're here, some thoughts about emerging infections and how uh, uh, adaptable and flexible the research infrastructure should be to adapt to these new problems.
0: Well, Raj may not be here, but maybe we could ask uh, Jonathan Lee to comment on monkeypox therapeutics and what the if he's here.
4: No, I'm I'm here. Thanks. Okay, good. It's it's challenging. Um, Historically, it's been challenging to get drugs approved or to even tested because of the lack of patients. And you know, this is one of those drugs that was approved based on the animal rule from the FDA that uh, allowed. Kind of uh, data from uh, animal studies in combination with safety data in, in, in human studies to um, to um, lead to FDA um, kind of authorization or FDA approval. And I think that um, at this point, because the number of cases is really skyrocketing, I think this is the time to, to do some of these human studies um, so that we can prove that these agents really are um, efficacious. I mean, I think anecdotally, it does sound like these agents do decrease the duration of shedding and, and improve symptoms, but I think we really do need to um, take the opportunity now and actually study some of these drugs in, in, in patients.
1: Great. Thank you, uh, John. Um, and anybody in general about the role of co-infection these days? Uh, there's some thought uh, by some scientists that when you have COVID, it's harder to get other infections. There's not a great lot of great evidence around that. And obviously we've been seeing a lot of co-infection, particularly in this monkeypox era and COVID era.
0: So are you asking about co-infection with monkeypox? or well, just
1: co-infection with- in general, when you have COVID, um, you know, the idea that uh, what what is the risk of getting co-infected either with other respiratory pathogens or with other... Uh, Viral or other infectious diseases.
6: And does well, COVID I, sort
1: of like crowd out the other field, which is the, the thinking, one line of thinking about influenza, although, you know, there isn't a lot of evidence around that.
0: Yeah, I think we saw a handful of manuscripts early on uh, suggesting what you just indicated. But I think that had more to do with just the overwhelming mm-hmm. number of people with COVID 19 in the hospital at that time. So that was early in the pandemic when hospitals were overwhelmed and people with influenza and some of the other respiratory viral infections either weren't being diagnosed or were being diagnosed late. I I certainly think there's um, a substantial number of reports now of RSV and COVID-19 co-infection with influenza and COVID-19 co-infection. And a lot of this has to do with what's circulating in the community at that time. And then once someone's hospitalized with severe COVID, the whole issue of hospital-acquired secondary infections comes into play, particularly for people who've been hospitalized for a period of time who are on dexamethasone or other immunomodulators. And they certainly are at increased risk for uh, secondary infections with hospital acquired bacteria, with fun- fungi, as you illustrated with the Aspergillus. There are a host of, of reports out of India with mucormycosis as a huge uh, secondary infection in people with COVID 19. So it's something to be aware of. Um, I don't think there's anything magical about COVID 19 that prevents you from getting a co infection or a secondary infection. Um, it's just a matter of what's circulating in your community, what's circulating in your hospital, and whether you're being appropriately monitored for and utilizing diagnostics to detect them.
1: Great. Thanks, Connie, for such a great response. Um, So in the interest of time, I'm just going to end with this, uh, not a whirl, just a cosmic brownie. I don't know why people are really into whirl. I really haven't gotten into it too much yet, but I know tons of people are really fanatic about it. The second one not will just me being the only one awake in my apartment building at 4am and last one my favorite personally not a whittle. this is how many tabs I have open on my work computer so thanks very much for your attention.
0: And thank you for those great cases and the discussion from the panelists so I think we have we'd like to open it up to the audience, we have a number of questions that are in the Q&A, so I'm going to pose these uh, where appropriate to other people, but um, we'll start off with having you answer some of these questions, Peter, since they're directed to you. So going back to some of the adjunctive therapies you talked about in the inpatient setting for people with severe COVID, um, there was a lot of attention early on on anticoagulation in a large active trial that addressed that question, what's the role for anticoagulation in people with severe COVID?
1: Yeah, so in general, I'll ha- I welcome everybody else to to enter uh, to answer that too. You know, first <laughs> of all, I think as ID, we were sort of like put in a weird place to even give uh, recommendations about anticoagulation and COVID, so that took us a little bit by surprise. But in general, um, you know, we are. And the hospitalists are very well much behind this, uh, giving therapeutic anticoagulation in people hospitalized with COVID disease, uh, not just simply COVID infection um, uh, during the, the course of, of their COVID. Um, I don't know if anybody else had any, uh, thing to add um, uh, from the panel to add to that in terms of their approach.
5: I can answer. Uh, Our approach at Mass General from the beginning has been to use um, prophylactic um, dose anticoagulation for hospitalized patients with COVID, understanding that it does seem to be prothrombotic. We've been more circumspect about therapeutic anticoagulation. Um, Many of the trials that showed benefit uh, did have a fairly large drop-off from those eligible to those entering the trial, um, you know, unusually so, close to 80%. And so um, while um, not necessarily representing selected patients, I mean, you can see that that it's difficult to tell how you would apply like a blanket heparinization of, of uh, all hospitalized patients. Yeah. And we also know not to do it if they're presenting rapidly, progressing, and they're on high flow or on... Uh, or headed straight to the ICU, that at that point um, uh, anticoagulation seems to be not beneficial. Uh, and that was well proven both for moderate do- intensity in anticoagulation as well as high intensity. So I think because the um, trials that were more positive for therapeutic anticoagulation uh, occurred in a different era and with that large drop-off, we, we are kind of aligned with NIH that make it kind of highly optional. And most of our hospitalists are not applying it very aggressively, if at all. Um, and I'll also point out there is another trial that came out um, looking at rivaroxaban for post-hospitalization for a month, um, and that did show a, a decrease in thrombotic events. It was an open-label trial, so in other words, there could be differences in ascertainment of those events um, based on the, the assignment to rivaroxaban or not, uh, and so uh, as of now, uh, I've not seen a change in guidelines based on that approach. And then, uh, finally, I, I think uh, post COVID, there's some uh, interest in that as well. But again, way too unproven. But but um, at this
2: time. Yeah, and just to add one more thing, in, in Pittsburgh, we have a similar approach. So we were in many of these trials. And back then, the, our suggestion was for prophylaxis, just do what you, would, what you would usually do. That's what we are still doing. And that for treatment, please enroll in trials. Now, um, the official recommendation from the health system is that if it's severe COVID-19, do not. Anticoagulate, and if it's moderate or they're on the floor, then consider, like Arthur said, it's sort of optional um, now, and I don't think people are being very prescriptive with it or are prescribing
1: therapeutic anticoagulation a lot. I guess overall my comment is that uh, in this era, with people seeing for shorter times, it is much less used, but it is an uh, option in (laughs) toolkit, and I I think in general, there's a lot of variation in services and how people implement it, but certainly not for the most severe and certainly not for the most uh, mild cases or asymptomatic, but that murky in between.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, let's go to a question I'd like to direct to Kara too. Has anyone used or considered using nirmatrelvir with higher or more frequent dosing without the ritonavir component in people at very high risk who are on some drugs they really need that have dangerous interactions?
3: Yeah, so I have not considered this. Um, I think that while a lot of the um, potential drug interactions um, with Paxilovid are represented by rit- ritonavir, or beer itself um, does have potential for drug interactions, um, potentially CYP3A4 inhibition, PGP inhibition. So um, I would not consider it free of risk um, in terms of drug interactions. And also the dose selection um, for Paxlovid was based on preclinical um, toxicity studies and phase one safety studies. So I really would really not um, use a different dosing strategy until there's there's data to demonstrate safety and efficacy.
4: I would just add that, that uh, for those individuals where there is drug-drug interactions, there are other agents that can be used, right? Like beptololimab, while we only have really phase two data for beptololimab, it is an agent that is in, this, in, a, in a class of monoclonal antibodies that's, that's repeatedly shown efficacy, especially for outpatients. Um, in addition, because beptololimab has longer half-life compared to Paxlovid, you know, you do, um, there is a potential benefit when it comes to immunosuppressed individuals and, and, and giving them um, kind of exposure to uh, a, a antiviral for a longer period of time.
0: Okay, there are several questions related to monkeypox, but I just have a note from Peter that he had to step out for an urgent patient issue. So if there are other panelists who can answer some monkeypox questions, We'd appreciate it, but one of them has to do with the role of vaccination for monkeypox. Um, is there a role for the Ginaeus vaccine and those who've had smallpox vaccine already and are exposed to monkeypox or at risk? Um, maybe John, do you know, Jonathan, do you have thoughts on vaccination for monkeypox or anyone else? Yeah, I don't
1: okay. know the answer to that question.
0: Yeah. I think that question may be beyond our our panel's expertise. So uh, we'll look it up. We'll try to look up an answer for you and and, uh, get back to you personally, Michelle. So another question, um, how long are treated monkeypox patients infectious? Anyone have experience with that question?
2: Not personal experience, but I think what they're saying is that until the lesions scab over, is that's my understanding.
0: Yeah, that's my understanding as well. And then um, maybe I'll take the uh, the next question: How can we get access to the monkeypox antiviral medicines? So there is a, a CDC um, compassionate or expanded use protocol available for. The, for TPOX or Tecovirimat, which is the drug that Peter talked about. And uh, if it's not being done in anywhere in your location, you might contact the CDC and ask whether it's available somewhere in your location or your local public health department. Here at UCSD, we have uh, the expanded access protocol. Um, Going through the regulatory process here, and it's also been available through our public health department. I see Peter's back on, so do you have any additional thoughts, uh, Peter?
1: Um, What was the question? I'm sorry, I had to step Um, up.
0: Access to the monkeypox antiviral medication, how does one gain access to it?
1: Yeah, so so far it depends on the institution because it, it you know it is as Connie mentioned an EAP drug, which means that the CDC actually has a, and all the CDC has a an IRB already approved. Um, but some institutions like UCSF require not just they can't you know there's this thing called an intent to rely, but they still require their own templated consent even if you use the language with someone else. So. That's that may introduce a delay. Also, you need to have pharmacists who are experienced because it's still called an investigational drug with tracking everything meticulously, and that has been the big limitation for a lot more centers not getting it. Um, The there's a lot of pressure right now in the CDC to reduce the barrier, but on the other hand, like Jonathan was saying, it's a golden opportunity to study it because we have thousands of patients of monkeypox, and um, you know. I'd, maybe in the most severe, it will be something that we would treat. But in the moderate, um, there probably is some way to investigate it rather than having it one way or the other. So that's kind of where we are right now in that that uh, polar two poles.
0: And maybe one last question for you, Peter, about monkeypox. Uh, can it be limited to the posterior oropharyngeal lesions? Have you seen more limited than what you described?
1: Um, It is possible to be limited, but uh, when you actually examine the patient, it's not limited. It's limited when the patient comes in because they can't always see all the areas. For example, there have been a few patients who had like extensive rectal or anal lesions, but they didn't see them. So it always, most times, in my experience anyway, and from the literature, there was the biggest study is actually just a a fewer than hundred patients from England in London Infectious Diseases. they start off in a general area and then move. And it's the movement that's uh, sort of like clinically uh, um, significant for monkeypox. I'd say that in this era now of widespread community transmission in the LGBTQ population, that diagnosing it and with the reduced barriers of having more commercial labs like Quest and, and LabCorp available to do the labs now, uh, we should be checking more rather than only checking the, the lowest hanging fruit. And And Connie, uh,
4: there's some,
0: go ahead, sorry. Sorry,
4: Connie, I was just gonna say, I I looked at the CDC website about this question about revaccination with Janaios after uh, um, prior smallpox vaccine, and the CDC website says that um, uh, those who are exposed who have not received a smallpox vaccine within the last three years can be, should be uh, revaccinated, so.
0: Okay, so, and Rachel, you had a comment in the chat. Do you wanna? add to that discussion about previous smallpox vaccine and risk?
6: Oh, just similar to to what John um, said, is that um, people are probably at lower risk if they've been previously vaccinated. And so the recommendations, my guess, will change depending on availability of vaccine. Um, We're in a triage situation where right now most health jurisdictions are giving um, vaccine as post-exposure prophylaxis to people who are confirmed contacts and starting to cautiously move into people who are at higher risk prior to exposure, um, so, so uh, I, I think it's possible that that uh, recommendation will, will change You know, if there is sufficient vaccine. We're, we're not in that scenario right now. Great. Well, that puts us right about on time for our
0: next discussion, so I'm going to close the Q&A and thank Dr. Chin Hong for an excellent um, group of cases and a great presentation of data related to inpatient treatment for COVID-19. We're gonna move on to our next speaker now.